Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, September 21st, we're studying Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 to 24. In today's text, the Lord gives regulations concerning the holiness of his priests. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's always great to be here. Thanks. Help us out. Get us started into the book of Leviticus today. Pastor Flammy, we're in chapter 21. What should we know about the book and the things that have been talked about thus far that'll help us with this chapter? What, what should we think about this book? Well, it's the butt of too many Babylon Bee jokes. We know that for sure. They, you know, they have this article out there, like man starts reading Bible, uh, gives up when he gets to the book of Leviticus. So why the, the really dry character? I mean, the way I think about it and explain to my people is like, look, in the Old Testament, you have not just the books of history, uh, not only do you have the books of prophecy, but you had very, very practical books about how the worship should be done, right? So Leviticus is the book of how we should do liturgy in the Old Testament, not for the New Testament, but for the Old Testament. Uh, it is what we would call in today's church an agenda, an agenda. So just like you would love to have your pastor crack open the agenda and start reading straight out of it during the service or during Bible study. So also, you know, there's a similar thing when people usually get to Leviticus and they ask themselves, why, why am I reading this? This is tedious. This is strange. This is weird. But if you understand it within that context, that this is providing for the liturgy of God's people, uh, who are the priests? What do the priests do? Uh, what is their role in interceding between them, them uh, between the people and between God? And uh, what, how does God especially bless his people through the liturgy? Then the book becomes much more understandable and important. That's, that's the first point I would want to make about Leviticus. The second point is that nothing in here is superfluous. Nothing. The Holy Spirit has a point for everything that happens in the Old Testament liturgy and divine service, and everything, every single thing points to Christ and his work of reconciling God to men through his sacrifice, through his blood. Uh, so this is something that is definitely going to come out in this chapter. Why, why is Moses, and the, you know, who is the mouthpiece of the Lord, so obsessed with the cleanliness and the purity and the holiness of the priests? Why all of these regulations? It was to teach through external signs uh, that which Christ would fulfill, not just on an external level like the priests of the Old Testament could, but also in a complete, full, human level uh, to be absolutely pure and free from sin so he could make the once-for-all sacrifice uh, to save us from sin forever. Mm. You know, I don't know that, that I've ever read straight from the agenda during a Bible class. 
But there there have been moments where where I will pull out the agenda or I will reference, say, one of the rubrics in one of the divine services or even part of, say, a pastoral address from one of the, like a funeral service or from the, the holy matrimony service, because you, you do get to see the theology put into practice. And so, yeah, maybe you wouldn't read it straight through with the agenda, but opening up the agenda and seeing how the theology is put into practice, there is certainly great benefit to that. No, that's a great point. I should do that more often. Maybe that's why I have so much trouble. People are like, why do we do these things? And I'm like, well, there's a book. Can we look at the book? Oh, it's too boring for you. <laughs> no, that's a really, really great uh, thing to do. To Because, it, in fact, in our Missouri Synod uh, altar book and agenda, you have these really great introductions that give the scriptural and confessional justification for the right in the service that's being that you know that you find the rubrics for and i think that's very very helpful not uh, not just for the pastors like you said but for the pastors to help explain to the people uh, this is why baptism happens in this way to to show the folks that this isn't stuff that's arbitrary that a bunch of pastors got together and say let's make some stuff up but everything is, in fact, justified from and comes from the scriptures. That's that. Yeah. So, no, that's a great example. And I should do that more often for sure. Well, and I think that helps us then with with the book of Leviticus, as we do see all of the details. And as you said, none of them are super, superfluous. Then that, that gives us some insight into how the Lord put the theology into practice, how the Lord was teaching his people through these various ceremonies, rites, rituals, instructions. They weren't just do this because I say so, but there was an element of teaching. He was showing them the theology that he wanted them to learn about who he is, what he does for his people. Yeah, that's right. How do you learn about sin? How do you learn about holiness? It, in fact, uh, is something that's probably best taught through these physical means. You know, that's we're so intellectual in, in our teaching and explication sometimes that we don't take seriously enough, uh, you know, the the bodily movements that, that happen within the divine service and how they convey and teach to the rest of the world that something holy is here, something separate, something that you can't, in fact, joke about. That's called blasphemy, right? Mm. Uh, that is something that is done so well and effectively uh, through the Old Testament divine service so that the people, instead of getting a diatribe on you know spiritual things that seem too high for them, they were being taught, you cannot come close to God unless right? Because of your sin. If you came close to God in your sin, you would die. That was literally being taught by the service here. And that they needed a priest, and that the priest had to be perfect. And the victim that was to be offered up to reconcile God and men had to be perfect, right? And because the people sinned often, uh, they needed sacrifices often, because as close to perfection as you could come with the priests and the victims, it was never, it was never going to match the high bar that God had set through his law. It only exacerbated everything. It only it showed the people that we can only come this close, but really we're failing to meet the demands of the divine service that God gave us in his law, so we're still in our sin. And so, I mean, with all of those things in mind, that they never quite measure up, particularly in a chapter like that, mm. how does that end up pointing us toward Christ? I'm, I'm sure we'll kind of close with that in our conversation, but just by way of preview, how does that end up pointing us toward Christ in the Old Testament? Yeah, of course. So if if the divine service could never perfectly be lived up to according to the letter of the law in Leviticus, and in Exodus for that matter, uh, uh, then, then it means that a better priest had to come. 
Otherwise, man is still in his sin and is going to die. And not just die physically, but eternally. Uh, it means that a better sacrifice was to come. Because every sacrifice, when you come down to it, I, I'm sure that uh, you can find one hair that's different from the other. Right? Uh, so we need a perfect sacrifice. We need a perfect priest. And this is the wonderful thing. The priests of the Old Testament were not ignorant, but they knew the promises of the coming Savior. And so uh, they should have, uh, when they were doing their job well, pointed to the sacrifices and said that uh, these things are showing us what God is going to do uh, through, the, through the one who is going to take away sin forever. You know, uh, All of this comes, of course, out, out gradually and in, gains richness and flavor uh, through the preaching of the prophets over the centuries, right? But even at this point, at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God delivering his Levitical laws, his, his laws for the worship to the people, yet they understood that uh, even at this point that the seed of the woman had to come to crush the serpent's head, that as awesome as Aaron was, right, and as awesome as Moses was, that they were not sufficient to finally defeat not just Pharaoh, but the, the ultimate enemy, who is Satan, and, and, uh, and to overcome finally his temptations and sins that lead to eternal death. Hmm. Now, the, the chapter that we have today deals particularly with requirements for priests and the Lord being very concerned about their holiness. The Lord has been concerned with his people's holiness throughout the entire book, and we've seen the priests come into particular view, especially in chapters 8 through 10, where Aaron and his sons are ordained. We see the misuse of, of holiness in chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu, most recently, again, it's been the, the holiness of the people at large that the Lord has been regulating, but here he turns especially to the priests. Why is the matter of the holiness of the priests particularly important among the people of Israel? I think it's because you need a, a worthy and an adequate mediator. Hmm. Uh, you know, that in order to approach God, to offer the sacrifice— uh, to propitiate God, to gain back his favor, to turn him away from wrath, right— uh, the priest himself had to be able to come close enough to perform the service. And this is being taught by these requirements of, of uh, you know, these, these physical requirements for the priests themselves, you know. Now, of course, I, I think that the priests and the people themselves knew that deep down, uh, you know, their, their external physical perfections of the high priest and the other priests who were able to offer the service were not, again, sufficient. But it did teach God's requirements it did teach that uh, a perfect priest would have to come someday to fulfill and to make perfect all of the sacrifices that it, that would be happening throughout the, the Old Testament, you know. And so you have to have a, a mediator. It's not just enough to have the sacrifice. You have to have the right person to bring the sacrifice into the presence of God so that he himself won't be destroyed on the way, but would uh, uh, be able to present it in the presence of God. And that's impossible for a sinner. Uh, a sinner tries to bring anything to God, and this is a good, this is a good law point. <laughs> a sinner tries to bring anything into the presence of God, he, and he may think to himself, "This is the most awesome and worthy sacrifice ever. God has to accept it, and He has to accept me." But if He comes in His sin, no matter what the gift is, it is always going to be unacceptable. Which is why it's so amazing for us as Christians that we have the acceptable priest and sacrifice in one who is Christ. And for his sake, and for his sake alone and by faith in him, we are found acceptable 
in, in, in God's sight, you know? If we tried to serve as our own mediators, it would never work. And it never would, it, it would never work. It doesn't matter how long you would practice your sanctification, it would never be sufficient. Uh, either it's Christ, he is the way, the truth, or the life, or it's no one. Yeah. All right. So with all those thoughts in mind, let's take a look at the text. This is Leviticus chapter 21 that we've got this morning. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has, no, she has had no husband, for her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to, the, to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow, or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed tex testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things. But he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. That's our text for today. That is Leviticus 21, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Flammy, the Lord's instructions for Moses to give to Aaron and his sons, the priests, start with the matter of becoming unclean for the dead among the people, except for certain relatives. What's this matter of death that makes one unclean? So I, I think, in fact, we have to be a little bit careful in exegeting this, because I have to tell you some of the most profound pastoral care moments that I've ever witnessed had to do with a pastor who is not afraid of being close to someone who is dead. Right. 
Uh, and so this is something we have to, first of all, point out. This is for the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a particular theological point was being made. However, this requirement does not pertain to the pastors and the ministers of the New Testament. So, for instance, uh, in today's day and age, when we don't have, we don't say that death is unclean, do we? Rather, we we have like this um, willful for forgetfulness or out of mindness for death, where we pretend like it doesn't exist. And what this means is that at the at times close to death or even after death, the family of the one who has died is nowhere to be found. They want to be away from there. They don't want, they, they'll say things like, I want to remember mom or dad in, in, in their prime. I want to uh, remember them as they were, not as they are right now. And they'll come up with any sort of excuse to stay as far away from the death as possible. Uh, even to the point where viewings, uh, viewings are very rare nowadays. I don't know if this is your experience, Tim, uh, viewings. Uh, do you still get many of them in the Midwest? They, they are here still, yeah. That's I good. Mean, yeah. I'm glad to hear that because out here in the West, uh, cremations are very, very popular and in demand. Uh, viewings are very, very rare. And even when it comes to the loved one seeing the, the body of the deceased one last time before the casket is closed or before the, the body is taken to be burned, uh, the families express not only to their pastor, <laughs> but also to the, the, you know, the folks who work in the funeral homes around town that this is something they just do not desire. Mm. Uh, now, of course, that's not universal. There are exceptions to that here in the West in my context, right? But nevertheless, like this aversion or, or sort of this avoidance of death has caused a problem. Um, it is uh, it has caused a problem in that people will not acknowledge where sin is leading. And it also does not allow for people to grieve in a Christian way, which is to know that the body is still in God's sight holy and that he has plans for this body, especially in the resurrection on the last day. Uh, so for instance, I was with a pastor who will remain nameless. And we went together, he and I together, went uh, to, to see the family uh, at a hospital and because the, the, this family's uh, matriarch had just died. And so we go into the emergency room and we find the family in the little, you know, the little cubicle or where they, you know, the section where they had the mom on the gurney, but she'd already been taken away. And the people were sitting there and we were talking to them. And this other pastor said, let's go find your mom. And somebody says, well, she's gone already. And he's like, no, 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 no. You need to come with and, and, and we need to say goodbye to her right now. And so they did. So they went out and they asked the, the folks, where, where's her body right now? And, and we all gathered around and he led us in praying Psalm 91. And then uh, he, of course, made the, the beautiful blessing over the body and the people saw it and, and, uh, and they began to understand. He said, you know, may God the Father who created this body, may God the Son who redeemed this body by his blood and God the Holy Spirit who sanctified and cleanse this body in the waters of holy baptism. Keep and preserve these remains until the resurrection of all flesh. And then he leaned down and kissed, you know, this lady, the, the body of this lady on her forehead, you know. And then he said something like, blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And what that did was it helped to transform these people's aversion to death. Uh, and it helped to catechize them 
in what what uh, that that uh, Christ has in fact taken what has been unclean <laughs> or avoidable and unholy, and He's blessed it through His own death, and we've been joined to that death through His baptism. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit and say, in the Old Testament, uh, you have to understand the context that Israel was coming out of, and that was Egypt. And the priests of Egypt were absolutely obsessed with death. They loved death so much. Why? Because it was a transport. (laughs) It was a level up from the corporeal to the spiritual and all things powerful. How do we know that? Well, my goodness, go look at the pyramids. (laughs) Go look at the priestly complexes, especially, that they built next to the pyramids. Uh, and, and, And these temples, the priestly complex... We're for, these div- we're for these rites of ascension through death. The, the, you know, the, the, the Pharaoh would leave behind the corporeal things, ascend into the spiritual and the powerful things, and uh, become more godlike than he was before, right? Uh, and this helps to explain some of the things that we read in this chapter, like you will not cut the hair off your head. Why is that? Well, to deal in a clean way with the bodies and to helping them in their progress from this life to the next life, of course, the priests in Egypt ritualistically had their heads shaved. They were to be clean in that way. And, uh, and it's interesting, the priests of the Old Testament were uh, not to be bald, but in fact to actually have hair, unless they were naturally bald, right? And we read about that also in the law. Uh, and so I think that that is, it adds some interesting context to this. Uh, this is juxtaposing the cult of death that uh, Dr. Kleinig mentions in his commentary, which they would have been surrounded by in Egypt. And they'd been surrounded by the cult of death in Egypt for like this obsessive cult of death in Egypt for like 400 years. And so now death is being not something that is a, 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 a process through which you should go so that you ascend into bigger and better things, but death is now unclean, unholy, to be kept away, not only from God, but also from the priests. Why is that? It's because death is God's judgment. It's because death is the consequence of man's sin. So when man rebels against God, the curse given to Adam and to the rest of his race is that you will die, right? Uh, And so instead of thinking of death as this naturalistic thing that all all the world is sort of uh, set up to go through and you know, in this weird great circle of life that Mustafa tells Simba about in The Lion King. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like I the know lion that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the yeah. lion dies and his body decays and the grass eats the lion, then the zebras eat the grass, and then the lion eats the zebra. Yeah. It's the circle of life. You can hear the song in your head, right? That's and this right. is a naturalistic way of dealing with death and calling it fine and just a process. Nothing to be afraid of. When in fact, God says, no, death is my judgment. It is because of your sin and rebelliousness, and it has no place in my presence or in the presence of my priests if they are to make worthy sacrifice for me on your behalf. Hmm. So thinking about you know where you started, how in the New Testament, some of the pastor's most profound ministry often happens in the context of death, right hmm. there when someone has died— and thinking about the way then the Lord tells his priests in the Old Testament not to go near to the dead in a, a you know, unless in certain circumstances, as are detailed here, the the difference is our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe maybe this is one of those places where we see the 
the inability of the law to do all that is needed. That's right. So, no, absolutely. Go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's absolutely right. The law brings you to the knowledge of sin. It exacerbates sin. It does not give you the bridge to overcome sin. It never does. It always sets it up as an impossible barrier that you cannot get around. God's wrath and judgment against you because you have fallen short of his glory, because you are unholy. You have desecrated yourself with your rebelliousness against him. The law will tell you all about it in exacting detail, but it never offers the way out. <laughs> so the law in and of itself, Leviticus by itself, is never going to be sufficient. Leviticus always has to be pointing to the promises of the coming seed of the woman. It always points us to Christ, who alone is the one who overcomes sin and death and the power of the devil, and who alone has made what was absolutely a sign of God's judgment and corruption and uncreation, which is death. And Christ himself, amazingly, through his death on the cross, it is three days in the tomb, sanctifies and makes holy the things that were the absolute like epitome of unholiness and uncleanliness in the Old Testament. And only Jesus can do that. Nobody else can do that. And he's done it through his death, his burial, his resurrection on the third day to show his, his lordship over sin and death and the power of the devil. And amazingly, that victory that Christ has, that lordship over sin and death, uh, and that sanctification even of the grave is given to you in baptism, you know? Uh, and so God be praised for that. Uh, that's, like you said, uh, Leviticus really does a wonderful job in teaching us, uh, you know, the profundity of, of death and what it actually means. It's not just another process of, of this world that we all have to go through. No, this is God's judgment, obviously, right? But at the same time, um, it doesn't offer the answer. The answer has to come from Jesus. Yeah. So, so to, to think about the way that that shows up in our agenda, in the service for committal, for Christian burial, there is a moment in which the pastor blesses the grave. He, he asks God to make this a holy place where one day that body will be raised in glory. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it is something uh, that the pastor uh, should be paying attention to, whether or not the grave has been sanctified already. Sometimes, you know, they put yeah. people on top of each other, especially in military cemeteries. And this is a question that a pastor should always ask, like, has this grave been sanctified? Because one of my saints is going to rest here. And when he ri rises, he's going to go be with Jesus, no matter, you know, what, has, uh, what else has happened around this grave. You know, so just in the same way as you want God to come and bless your home through his word and prayer, right? You want to do the same thing with the place that you're going to be staying until Jesus raises you up on the last day. It's a very practical thing. It's a very Christian thing to desire and also for the pastor to speak. And uh, so talk to your pastor about that, you know? Uh, when Especially, I have to emphasize making your funeral arrangements ahead of time. This is a very good thing to do, especially in the presence of your family, uh, in, in talking to your pastor. Uh, because it helps to demystify death. It helps us to understand that this is something that helps to proclaim Christ, especially when we surround death in the way that it's meant to be surrounded by, and that's with God's word and prayer, you know, through the liturgies that we have. So wonderfully set for out for us in, our, in an agenda that your pastor may or may not use in Bible study. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, you know, at the same time, those, those rites and those liturgies surround death with the word of God, and they, and they sanctify death, and they connect us with what Jesus has done. And, and instead of making death, instead of death being God's judgment, it's now become that portal to eternal life. And they you know the, the gate through which we should go, as the psalmist says. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks Thanks be to God for the way that he has conquered even death. We're going to take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Brian Flammy this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 21st. We're studying Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 to 24, with Pastor Brian Flamy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamy, prior to the break, we were talking about the matter of death that would make the priests, the sons of Aaron, unclean, and they are not to do that for those who have died, but there are exceptions given in verses 2 and 3. Why those exceptions? I believe those exceptions show that the exactitude of the law in its most absolute sense, is absolutely undoable for human beings, right? Only Christ can fulfill the law. Uh, and so you have these exceptions because the Levites, the, the priests have to be able to take care of their immediate family when they're dying. It is a necessary human duty that has to be, that has to be performed. And so God does make exception here because once the point of the law has been made, then still the Lord makes provision for the daily lives of the people. And especially when it comes to you know, taking care of the dead, making sure that the bodies are prepared and also buried uh, it, it, in, in a respectful and a reverent way. Uh, and and uh, so, I, again, I, it, it shows like the law in its absolute sense is impossible, even for the priests of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a yoke that cannot be borne, as St. Peter says at the uh, Jerusalem Council. Uh, and that's why you have these various exceptions from time to time. Yeah, and, and as the those exceptions are given, there are different there are different exceptions for the the priests and also the high priest. You see yes. kind of both of those, both in terms of of the matter of death, but then also in terms of the matter of marriage, which is also a part of the holiness of the priest is who they can marry. So how does how does this play into the priest's holiness, who they marry? Absolutely. So the the priest, of course. Uh, as Kleinig says in his commentary, I know you've been hearing that a lot from your commentators lately. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> the, the, the priest is, of course, with one flesh with his wife, right? And so the holiness of the woman reflects on the husband, and the husband, the holiness of the husband also reflects on the wife, right? Uh, but unlike the holy mystical marriage of Christ and the church, whereas where the church is made holy, right, by our union with Christ by faith, uh, the, the union of the high priest of the Old Testament was not su- with his wife was not sufficient to cover all of her iniquity, right? Again, it shows you that the high priest is important. He's a very special guy. Uh, only he can go into the presence 
of the of God in the holiest of holy places, and yet even even he is not uh, able to make his own wife, his own family holy, because he is ultimately uh, pointing forward to the great high priest, who is Christ Himself, right? Uh, and and uh, but I do think that, and this is uh, of course to be read in conjunction with Ephesians chapter five. I do think that the uh, the holiness and and the purity of the wife of the priest and the high priest especially uh, shows us what in fact happens when the union of Christ is is made uh, in the New Testament by faith, right? Christ gives us his holy sanctifying word, his holy baptism, uh, the holy food of his body and his blood. By faith, uh, we receive these things for our forgiveness, life, and salvation. And the bride of Christ, even though on this earth, that she suffers and she mourns and she's plagued by the flesh, yet in the sight of God, what is the bride of Christ? Cleansed, pure, clean. Just like this image of the bride of the high priest here in Leviticus 21. See, it's a, it's a promise in waiting. <laughs> uh, you could imagine uh, uh, it probably caused a headache from time to time uh, that the, the wife had to be so pure, perfect, and holy for the high priest, right? Uh, again, it's not something that, that is to find ultimate fulfillment and perfection in the Old Testament. It was pointing forward to the sanctification in the broad sense, right? The sanctification, the holiness of the Holy Christian Church in the New. Hmm. Now, you mentioned when it came to the matter of pastors going to those who are dead now, those applica- I mean, the application is certainly not one-to-one. In terms of, of marriage, how does this perhaps apply to pastors and also to, to Christians in general? Because it's not a one-to-one correspondence from the Old Testament priesthood to the New Testament office of the ministry. So how do, how do we take the concern for marriage here and apply it to both pastors and laity today? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, Probably the first thing to say is that, uh, like my Anglican friends, I was using an Anglican commentary. I'll, I'll admit that on, on your radio <laughs> program. They're, it's entertaining at least. But these poor Anglicans in like the 19, in the 1800s, they had a hard time believing that the Bible was literally the Word of God. You know what I mean? Mm. And because of that, everything had to be sort of connected to the New Testament by extension. And so the priests of the Anglican Church, His Majesty's Church, uh, could learn about their own priesthood by making an analogy or an allegory uh, uh, with the priesthood of the Old Testament. Uh, realize that the priesthood of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Christ and in his priestly work. And here's an amazing thing. Like, if Christ is our high priest, then who are the priests of the New Testament? It's all the Christians. All the Christians are priests. And we offer the spiritual sacrifices that are far more acceptable in God's sight than anything that was offered up according to the law or merely according to the law. And what are those spiritual sacrifices? Prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, right? The the holy ministry of the New Testament, the preaching office of the New Testament, is very distinct and different from the priestly office of the Old Testament, right? Which, first of all, points to Christ and his sacrifice. Uh, And the pastors, the, the ministers, the preachers of the New Testament proclaim, they teach, they preach. We don't offer propitiatory sacrifice in the same way as the priests of the Old Testament do. And we should also be teaching that the, pe- the people of the New Testament, straight from the scriptures, that they are the priests. And they offer the spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, that they don't have to have this, this pastor intermediary, right, for their prayers, 
uh, for their thanksgivings uh, to be acceptable in God's sight. Not at all. Instead, what they need is a priesthood, or, or, or rather, a ministry that preaches the gospel for them, that instructs them, and that administers on their behalf, on the behalf of the, of the entire church, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? And the public teaching and, 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 uh, and ministry of the church. That's what they really need. Uh, now, because of that, the requirements of the Old Testament priests when it comes to marriage and the New Testament, they're going to be related because God has a lot of concern in his, in his holy ordering of creation. He has a lot of concern for marriage as being sort of the foundation of the bedrock of human society on this earth, right? Uh, because he has so much concern for marriage, marriage matters uh, to the priests of the Old Testament, the Aaronic priesthood, and also to not just the, the, the marriages of the pastors uh, of the New Testament, but to the, the marriages and, and, uh, of, of all the Christians in the New Testament, right? Uh, so, you know, we can go to the, uh, uh, the requirements of, of uh, the, the preaching ministry in the pastoral epistles, right, in 1 Timothy or something like this in chapter 3 there. Uh, he must be the husband of one wife, you know. Uh, and and we, what I would encourage people to do is not to, to read that necessarily through the lens of, the, of this uh, Old Testament requirement for the, for the Aaronic uh, priesthood, but rather to see this as a necessity for someone who is going to be preaching on the sixth commandment, right? And how God orders uh, all of our earthly society around a, a marriage between a husband and a wife and the family that they have and those families uh, interact with each other, you know, to form the congregation upon this earth, right? Uh, so I, so even though they're related, it's almost like they have just, uh, the same starting point, but they end up in different places and you can come around and connect them both, right? But ultimately, it's only because they share in common the sixth commandment and the institution of, of holy matrimony in the scriptures. Mm. Yeah. So, And then when it comes to the marriage of, of Christians just in general, I mean, passages perhaps like, well, in Hebrews 13, where about keeping the marriage bed pure, that would be a, another application of something similar, or perhaps the way Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers— these would be other places where this, the idea of the marriage of the priests here applies to Christians today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and again, uh, that, that just as it was important to have an undefiled marriage for the priests, so also husband and wife should love and honor each other, as we say in the Catechism, right? Uh, that we should abstain from any kind of idolatry and unfaithfulness with our, with our minds, with our hearts, with our, with our words and our actions. Uh, and uh, just as that was uh, something that, that uh, of course, it was absolutely necessary for the priests themselves in the Old Testament to, uh, to show God's concern for this thing. So it also is not just for the pastors of the New Testament, but for all the people of the New Testament, you know. Yeah. Well, and then, and this, uh, maybe I should have asked this one first, but it's coming back to my mind now. What, concerning the pastors, that you do have that specific requirement there in 1 Timothy 3 about being the husband of one wife, and I think it's probably in Titus 1 as well, yep. and which is given specifically to the office of the pastoral ministry. Is, is there something to the fact that because he has been placed in that particular office, there is a requirement that is, is placed upon him, not in the sense that he's holier than the others, but he, being in that office, is held up as an example in a way that perhaps other Christians are not always put in. Does that make oh, sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense, especially like in the latter half of the 20th century. What was the big 
what was the big fight? It was over divorce and the skyrocketing divorce rate, even among Christians, right? And it didn't help in the least when the pastors themselves were finding justifications to get divorced from their wives. And that was smashing, right? This, this beautiful image of, uh, of Christ at his church that was supposed to be exemplified by the pastor and his own bride. Whenever the pastors themselves found justifications for, for divorce and for remarriage, uh, and that, that can make a whole congregation and whole groups of congregations lose heart over the, the possibility of having, you know, one marriage till death parts you, you know. Uh, so, no, you, you know, what, so the pastor serves as an example to the entire Christian congregation. And, of course, it not just pertains to his, the immediate relationship with his wife, but, of course, with the relationship in his whole household, you know. Do his children listen to him and obey him? Uh, is he able to keep the household, his own household in order? Because as St. Paul says, if he can't even keep that in order, how can you expect him to keep in order the household of God in the, in, in the Christian church, right? Uh, so, uh, and, and, and this really should help pastors to take very seriously, um, you know, the, the, you're, everybody laments, oh, my life is in a fishbowl. Everybody can see how we live. And it's like, well, you know, the Bible said it was going to be like that, right? <laughs> That everybody was going to be able to see how your kids act. Everybody was going to be able to see how you love or don't love your wife, right? So, uh, you know, instead of despairing of the fact that people can actually see how you interact with your wife and your kids, embrace it, double down on it. Uh, uh, if you haven't been loving your wife, now's a great time to start. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. That's right. There's no better time than right now to repent right. and, and listen to God's Word. And one more thought on, on just this mar- matter of marriage of priests and, and pastors as well. It is, it's also a, a reminder that the, the papists were wrong to forbid marriage to the priesthood, to what they call the priesthood. I'm so glad you brought this up. It turns out from would. this Anglican like commentary that, that I was uh, so excited to find and read through. And this Anglican commentary had all of these reasons why getting married as, as a priest is a good thing. And, and it, of course, it says, well, it undermines uh, the temptation of the papacy uh, to be loyal to a foreign power rather than to one's own sovereign. <laughs> because these celibate priests don't have the most basic foundation of, uh, of uh, the most basic bedrock uh, foundation of society of having a wife and kids, which integrates them into the community of the country that they belong in, right? So they're most, more susceptible to these, these orders from a foreign power, like the Pope and the Vatican, to subvert society in England. Oh, how great. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> now, the, the last thing in, in Leviticus chapter 21, when it comes to the holiness of the priests, have to do, it seems like, with his qualifications simply to do the job, although perhaps it seems a little more stringent than we would expect. There are a variety of blemishes, as it's often called, that yeah. would disqualify a man from being, it sounds like especially the high priest. Uh, what's the Lord's concern here? Yeah, this is, again, it points to the necessary purity, holiness, separateness, and perfection of the priests. Not just of the priest, but of course of the high priest especially. Uh, and so remember that the Lord is teaching through these external signs something that is to belong to the whole person of the Christ, right? The, to his whole person, that he has no blemish upon his soul. He is absolutely free from the curse that had been inherited from Adam and also from sins that are committed uh, even independent of that curse, right? Uh, and 
so Dr. Kleinig also makes this point that this has a practical, uh, this is a practical instruction as well. Um, that so, especially with some of the, the blemishes that are spoken of here, it would have made, if not impossible, at least very difficult, uh, the, the, uh, the performance of the rites necessary for the divine service that God had commanded. And so these men, instead of feeling an impossible burden put upon them, here you see God's mercy coming through and saying, don't worry, you don't have to put yourself into a position where you can't perform what God is saying that you have to perform, right? The point is made. The priest must be holy, separate, and perfect as God himself is holy, separate, and perfect. The point has been made very well, right? But at the same time, for those men who are unable to match that, we should never, never doubt that God's mercy is not for them. And in fact, this is the cool thing that I, that I like about this chapter. And Dr. Kleinig does a wonderful job of pointing this out, and so do, so do other commentators like Kaelin Dalich and and even our Anglican friends caught on to this. They weren't just ranting against the papacy as a foreign power, right? But they caught on to this as well, that even though these men were physically deformed and, and uh, unworthy in, in their external appearance to offer the sacrifice necessary in the Old Testament, yet they received the benefit of the sacrifice. They ate the food. They ate the holy food that made them holy and acceptable in God's sight which is a beautiful teaching of, you know, how we continue to bear the flesh in this world. And yet, because we commune on Christ by faith and even orally, right, by in the sacrament of the altar, eating uh, uh, his body and drinking his blood for the forgiveness of sins, it, uh, even if we have trouble with our eyesight, uh, even if I uh, struggle with temptation and sin, Yet when I hear the words and I repent and I believe the promise of the forgiveness of sins, uh, I receive the blessing of Christ's once for all sacrifice. And I am in God's sight, pure and holy, even as Christ my Lord is pure and holy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so thinking about, again, applying this especially to the pastoral office in this case, thinking about those men who might be disqualified from the pastoral office because they, you know, for whatever reason, those qualifications listed by Paul, they don't measure up. That does not disqualify them from the priesthood of believers that you were talking about earlier. It does not disqualify them from receiving the mercy of God. They may not be given this particular office to be in the preaching office, but they are still very much among God's people and participants in, in those gifts that he gives. Yeah, that is, that is so important to point out, because... It, it, it happens even where, where a man is, is fit for the office at one point in his life, and in a moment of sin and unbelief, he does something that disqualifies him from the preaching office. Now, a great temptation comes upon such men after they have been removed from the office, and that is thinking that, well, God has given me great gifts, great abilities, he's ordained me once, who's to say that I am forever removed from that service in God's kingdom as for being a public preacher and administrator of the sacraments. And then after the, the church has said, you no longer have a call, and the church is, of course, acting as the mouthpiece of God for that man, uh, that man then assumes for himself the call, right? Uh, and he uh, becomes uh, a sneak preacher, as Luther would say. And that great temptation can be avoided, and it should be avoided, and, you know, sadly, this happens so often in, in the church in every time and place where men fall into sin and they can, can no longer serve as pastors. Yet 
Those men should not despair or lose heart, but they should rejoice in the fact that the forgiveness of sins is still for them. Uh, that, that even though they are blemished and unfit to perform the rites of the divine service, just like these men in the Old Testament, nevertheless, they still eat the holy food of Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins if they come to the altar in repentance and faith. You know, And that's enough. That's enough. Why can't that be enough? And if there's something, if the man says that, no, I, I deserve more, I need more, I should do more, then that is coming not from God, that's coming from himself at his own sinful vanity and pride. You know, uh, now these, of course, you know, in first in Corinthians chapter 10, St. Paul says, take heed those you stand lest you fall. And so this is something that a pastor, even now who is serving in good standing in the pastoral office should take to heart and resolve himself to, uh, that even if Satan thinks that he can overcome me and destroy me and my family and my congregation someday by leading me into some sin or, or some vice, you know, uh, you know, God keep me from that, just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. But at the same time, uh, I should look forward, you know, to the fact that even those sins are not unforgivable. That Christ died for even those sins. And that uh, for those of us who live upon the earth, right, uh, who have ears to hear the gospel, uh, the forgiveness of sins is still for us. God doesn't lie when he preaches. He tells the truth when he says that Jesus has died for the sins of the world. And not just for some sins, for all sins of the whole world, you know. Uh, so we should find encouragement and comfort in that and resolve ourselves to, if it does somehow happen someday that I fall from, you know, the, the ability to perform my, my preaching office, then that should by no means exclude me from communion with Christ or my family, you know. Uh, that's a heavy sort of thing to talk. Man, I don't want to finish the episode like this. We got to talk about something a little more cheery. No, that, that's okay. No, we, we've got about <laughs> we've got about four minutes left here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and that I think is is a good amount of time because we we've brought you've brought in the way that this is fulfilled in Christ all along. So with about four minutes, you know, thinking about the variety of things we've talked about, priests con- connected to death and marriage and and physical blemishes. How, how does all of this end up pointing us to Christ as the fulfillment and our great high priest? With about four minutes, help us to wrap, wrap it up. I can't say it better than St. Paul says it in Hebrews chapter 7. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. From Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. Jesus is the Son of God, appointed to be priest forever. And this is an amazing thing because we always have a mediator to go between us and the holiness of God, Jesus Christ our Savior. He knows our weakness. He knows our sin. And God be praised that when he came to be our priest, he took from us our sin, our guilt, our iniquity. And he offered up the once-for-all sacrifice so that in God's sight, from now into eternity, we are holy, we are pure, and we can and we do serve as holy priests in God's sight, offering up the sacrifices of prayer, of thanksgiving, 
of praise. Uh, so as you consider your life this week or uh, through the course of the day and, and uh, give thanks to God that uh, we have been set free from the old bonds of the law uh, through the, the, the sacrifice and through the, the service that Christ offered up for us through his cross, his death, and his resurrection. Pastor Brian Flammy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. He has been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Jesus is our perfect high priest who has come before God without blemish, offering the sacrifice of himself for our sake. Through his sacrifice, we are cleansed. He has made us his holy bride, purifying us from all iniquity and making clean even that matter of death, which had been God's judgment upon our sin, now has become the portal to eternal life, for he has sanctified even our graves, and he will raise our bodies from the dead on the last day to live as a kingdom of priests before him forever. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus chapter 20 or any of the book of Leviticus, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also go to your favorite app store. You can download the KFUO app. You can send a message to us there through the open mic feature, and that's a great way to listen to the program both live and on demand. As always, thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.